Matthew chapter 24. The title of this sermon is, Wake Up! And just full disclosure, there's a chance that I might yell like that at least two more times before the <laughs> sermon's done. Matthew chapter 24. Let's pray together. We sang just a minute ago, Lord, that uh, someday, soon maybe, you're coming on the clouds when you're going to make all things right. And that's what, that's what this passage is talking about. But until then, uh, Lord, we, we want to be about your business, and you have some things to say about that. So we ask that you would open up our ears to hear what you want to say to this little tiny part of your church here at Reality Ventura. Thank you for your word. We ask God that you would anoint me and my lips to preach it. I don't want to say anything that's not anointed by you. And I ask that you would open our eyes to see all that you have for us today. And that we would be uh, not like the person who looks in the mirror and sees what type of person we are and then walks away and forgets. But as we look into the word of God, that we would see things and then we would turn around and we would respond to those things. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, if you were here, uh, if you weren't, I'd encourage you to go on the website, realityventura.com, go to sermons, latest sermon, and listen to that, because this is kind of uh, part two from last week. And last week, we, we looked at the first 31 verses of this chapter, where after we see Jesus rebuking the, the religious leaders for their hypocrisy, we see him lamenting over Israel. And he tells these people that, he would not see them again, or they would not see him again, rather, until he returned a second time, speaking of his second coming, which would come in a victory and glory. And then he pronounces this judgment on Israel when he says that your house, your temple, will be destroyed, which we know happened in AD 70. And if you remember in response to this kind of startling statement, the disciples ask three questions. They say, Jesus, when will this be? When, when, when will the destruction of the temple be? What will be the sign of your coming? Is there something, some signs to look for for us to know that you're going to come back? And thirdly, what will be the sign of the coming of the end of the age? Speaking of that time just before Jesus returns. And in addressing their last question, Jesus talks about a time in the world where there's going to be a lot of rebellion. And there's going to be a lot of lawlessness. And as a result of that, the world would be in chaos. And the church would be under attack. It was this pretty bleak forecast that Jesus gave. But then he brought his followers and in turn us great hope as he spoke of his second coming. When he would come in glory and power. And we talked about what the Bible says that would be like last week when we said there will be a time when there will be no more death. And there will be no more tears. And there will be no more suffering. And finally all the lawlessness and rebellion of the world will be done with. All the brokenness will be fixed. The enemy will finally be no more. And a time when we will dwell in absolute eternal glory and peace. And we stopped last week. That's right. Woo! We stopped last week in verse 31. And so today we're going to finish the chapter. But we're going to start by just reading the, first, uh, the next 10 verses. Verses 32 through 42. Jesus continues on. After talking about his second coming, and he says in verse 31, From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out his leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. 
Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, there were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the days when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. So will it, the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. At the end of last week's uh, passage, Jesus gave us something really excited, uh, something to be really excited about, right? His glorious and victorious return. It was like he was describing the best Christmas morning ever. And like Christmas morning, though, the question is, okay, but when, Jesus? Right, when are you coming back? We have a little four-year-old, his name's Kingston, and uh, Kingston can't like tell time. He doesn't know how long a week is. He doesn't know how long a day is. When I go away for like a two-week trip, I come back and he's like, Daddy, you were gone for 427 years. He doesn't know, right? And so starting in November, he starts saying stuff like, Daddy, but when is this glorious thing you speak of called Christmas? Right? He's just like, when? And in light of Jesus saying, hey, I'm coming back, and the way he describes it, it's like, like I said, the best Christmas ever. The looming question is, yeah, but when, Jesus? But when are you going to return? Because that sounds like the best thing ever and so much better than everything we've got going on here. But as we'll see in our passage today, the goal of Jesus is not to answer the question when, but rather to instruct his followers on how we ought to live until he returns. In fact, he spends the whole first section that we just read saying two things that work in tension with each other as it pertains to the question when. He says that when you see the world in chaos and the church under attack, know that I am coming back soon, he says. I'm coming soon. But also, he says, and you have no idea when it's going to be. So in verse 33, right, he says, the time is near. It's at the very gates is what he says. It's right around the corner, in other words. But then in verse 36, he holds this intention when he says, but concerning that day or hour, nobody knows. Now, I know that it has been the tradition of many Christians and many pastors to try to figure out when, right? To look at the quote-unquote signs of the times and be like, oh, that country over there, Russia? I bet you Russia is this in the Bible. And China? I bet you China is this. And the United States? The United States isn't even in there because the United States is so wicked we're going to be wiped off the face of the planet. But I bet you this thing that's happened over here is this thing in the Bible. When all that happens, then Jesus is going to return, right? We love to do that. It's fun and it's, it's intriguing and it's exciting to try to figure that stuff out. That it's fine to do, but our focus should not be on understanding or trying to figure out when Jesus is coming, but rather on understanding how we ought to be occupying our time and our lives until he does return. Because the Bible is pretty clear that, hey, dude, you're not going to figure it out. Nobody knows, not even the angels or the son, just the father. So it's right around the corner. It's at the gates. Yes, but you're not really going to know. And this, by design, creates a healthy tension for the believer. Where we live in this place of the kingdom of God is among us because God is dwelling in us and working through us. And yet, the kingdom of God is not yet fully realized because we are still awaiting the coming back, the return of the king. It is now And it is not yet. And this is the God-designed tension that we see in verses 32 through 42. And a tension that it is healthy for us to live in. Now, before we move on, 
Let's just address really briefly uh, verse 34 because it can kind of trip you out at a first read. Jesus says there in verse 34, we just read it. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. So what generation is Jesus speaking of here? Well, we can't be certain, but we can be certain that he was not referring to the generation that he was talking to because they did pass away before he returned. The most natural and uh, common interpretation of this is that Jesus is referring to the generation that sees these signs. The signs that he just spoke of, he's saying this generation, that generation that sees those signs will not pass away until these things happen. In other words, the generation that sees all of this stuff, the great abomination of desolation that we saw at the beginning of this chapter, the great tribulation, that generation will also see me return, and they will not pass away until they do see all of those things. The word generation can also be translated as race, which some scholars interpret as Jesus giving a promise that the Jewish race would not pass away until these things happen. The Jewish people would not be eliminated until these things take place. And Jesus then continues in verse 43. And the focus begins to change here as he shifts the attention from the fact that he's coming again and it's going to be a surprise to instruction for his followers on how we ought to live until he comes. Jesus wants to shift our attention from looking for answers about the future to looking for an understanding of the reason that we are here in the first place. Continuing on, verse 43, Jesus says, But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect and an hour he does not know and will cut him into pieces And put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In the first section of our passage that we read a minute ago, Jesus addresses the question, yeah, but when, Jesus, right? By by holding in tension this idea of soon, and yet nobody knows when it is. And while it's not his intention to give an answer about when he'll return, it is his intention to instruct us on how we ought to live until he does return. And so that's where we're going to spend the the rest of our morning this morning. Here's the deal. I don't know about you, but I don't don't do this Jesus thing um, because it's cute or because it's trendy or because that was the way I was raised and my family does it or because I married a cute girl who happened to love Jesus or because I wanted something like a spiritual aspect in my life and it seemed like Jesus was the best option. Follow Jesus because he is the way to the Father. And I was created to have a relationship with my creator. If you've been born again, 
then you have been bought at a price. You have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the beloved son. You are a child of God. You are a kingdom kid. And I don't know about you, but as a kingdom kid, I don't want to waste my life investing in things that aren't of the kingdom. I.e. things that don't matter or have any eternal value in the kingdom of God. And so if Jesus or scripture have something to say about how I ought to be living until he comes back, then I want to hear those things. I want to lean in my ear to those things. And Jesus does have some things to say about that. And the first thing he says, verses 42 and 44, that while we are waiting for him to return, guys, we need to, ought to be awake. We need to stay awake And be ready is what he says, because you do not know the hour the Lord is coming. He's talking about spiritual awakeness. You know, in Matthew, the end of Matthew, a couple chapters from now, we're going to see that Jesus is at the end of his whole life, right? All of his life is culminating right here. He's about to go to the cross. And he's with the disciples and he asks them in the garden, will you watch and pray with me. Jesus is inviting them in to one of the last things he's doing before he walks that road to the cross. And the disciples miss it. They say, yes, yeah, Lord, we want to in- come into this invitation with you. And they miss it. They say yes, but they fall asleep and entirely miss what Jesus is doing. I don't know about you, but I don't want to miss what Jesus is doing because I'm sleeping. And for me, it wouldn't necessarily be because I'm physically asleep, although it's certainly possible. But it would probably be because I have allowed something or some things in my life to like rockabye baby me into a, a spiritual lull. Right? Where I have this appearance of like being awake and being busy and doing stuff, but I'm really just sleepwalking. I don't want to be sleepwalking. I want to be awake walking. It is one of the greatest joys in life to be caught up and wrapped up in the middle of what God is doing. And I want me, I want us, church, to be found right in the middle of that. Not found sleeping, but to be awake and ready, like he says in verse 44. To be alert, 1 Peter says, be alert, guys, and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So be awake. Be alert. Be awake. Because your devil, the devil is roaming around. Your enemy is roaming around like a lion who wants to destroy you. And guys, that dude is smart. He's been around longer than you. He's more cunning than you are. And him bringing destruction in your life might not always be some loud, obvious thing. Sometimes it's going to be subtle and quiet. And you got to be on the alert and aware of the ways that he might be quietly and sneakily distracting you with lesser things like money and possessions and grudges and Netflix. For real, dude, I'm not joking. Like, some of you are spending so much time relaxing, watching your shows, that you are literally missing what God's doing in your life. Because you're being lulled into this complacency and laziness. And I'm not saying that Amazon Prime and Hulu and Netflix are the devil, but I am saying that the devil can definitely, will, can and will use those things to distract us and disconnect us from what God is wanting to do in our lives. 
The second thing that Jesus instructs his followers to do in that passage we just read, see it in verse 45 and 46, until he returns, he says, be faithful. First Corinthians says that it is required of a steward to be found faithful. You are stewards. I am a steward. Here's the requirement. Be faithful. Second Chronicles 16.9 says that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. God wants to show himself mighty, strong on your behalf. He wants to reveal his mighty power through you. As we are faithful to him, he will reveal his power through us. And listen, the call here is not to try to be fruitful. The call is to be faithful. It's required of a steward to be found faithful. The fruit comes by faithful abiding in Jesus. So I would ask you, in the things that God has given you stewardship over in your life, are you being faithful? In your family, are you being faithful to, to lead your family or be in relationship with your family in the way that you should be? In your relationships, in your marriage with your spouse, are you living in faithfulness? Not just like not cheating on each other, but like faithful to the way that we ought to be treating one another and our roles as husbands and wives and your, in your job, with your money. Are you being faithful to invest your money and your stuff in places that have eternal value and your gifts, your talent, the way that God's made you? Are you being faithful to use that in a way that's going to have some kind of eternal value? If you're not, then this isn't meant to condemn you. There's no condemnation in Jesus, but there is a correction then that needs to be made. And then Jesus instructs us until he returns, verse 45, to be wise. How ought we to live until he returns? We ought to be wise. How do we do that? Well, Proverbs 9.10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is is the beginning of wisdom. You want to heed the instruction of Jesus and be wise until he returns? It starts by fearing God, which starts by recognizing who God actually is, that he is more powerful and mighty and stronger and huger and more powerful and honestly, like, terrifying than we could ever imagine. There's a reason why every time God showed up in the Bible, people, like, immediately, oh, like fell on their faces before him. He is this mighty God, and yet there is this mystery that he is also more compassionate and kind and tender and protective and loving than we could ever fathom. What's crazy is when he brings us in, then all of a sudden, this big old huge gnarly being like grabs us and says, you don't have to be afraid of me, though. But I am kind of gnarly. <laughs> and I'm working for you. You're on my side. And if I'm for you, then nobody's, nobody can be against you. Nobody. And all your enemies freak out when they see me. And you're hidden in my arms. And we must never remember, though, 
how insanely huge and mighty he really is. And to have a healthy fear, not be frightened, but in awe of God. That is where wisdom starts. And then we find this nuance in this passage as Jesus refers to his servants as the ones who are to feed the people in verse 45. How do we live until Jesus returns? What do you want to occupy your time with? Feed the people. One of the things I love about Jesus is how much he talked about food. Right? Jesus was always doing something with food. He was barbecuing fish. He was going over people's houses for dinner. He was even called himself the bread of life. Jesus using food for analogies. And after he rises from the dead, he's at the beach, standing around the fire, barbecuing fish once again. And he's there with Peter, who just three days earlier had royally screwed up. And Peter, no doubt, is feeling pretty small at this point. But Jesus picks him up from his, like, shameful place, right? And he says to him, Peter, I want you to feed my sheep. Peter, I want you to care for my lambs. Peter, feed my people. And what are they fed with? With Jesus. He is the bread. He is the bread of life. And if Jesus is the spiritual bread, then guys, we are like spiritual bread delivery truck drivers. Delivering the bread of Jesus. Psalm 145 says of God, when you open your hand, oh God, you satisfy the hunger and thirst of every living thing. God loves to satisfy the hungry. It's part of what he does. That's why Jesus is always feeding people. Like, people are hungry. Give me a fish. I'm going to make a bunch of stuff. And there's going to be leftovers. Let me feed the people. God wants to feed the people. And he wants to use us to do it. Before Moses saw God in the burning bush, you know what he was doing? He was out feeding sheep. Before David was king, you know what he was doing? He was out feeding sheep. God cares about feeding people. And he is the greatest spiritual meal that anyone could ever taste. He says he opens his hand and satisfies the hunger of every living thing. And just like he wanted to involve Peter and Moses and David in feeding people, he wants to involve us in bringing the bread of life to those who are hungry. Namely, everybody. The last thing we see there is that Jesus instructs us to live as servants in the master's house. Jesus refers here to the people as being servants in the master's house. And you know what the job of a servant is? It's to tend to the work of the master. But let me take it one step further because we are servants in the house of God in some respects for sure. But guys, we're so much more than that. We are children in the master's house. We are children of the master. Paul writes to the church in Galatians, says, you are no longer a slave, but God's child. Since you are his child, you are also, God has also made you an heir. The beauty of the gospel is that God has brought us into his house not to run errands or do work as mere servants. He has brought us into his house to be in relationship with him as dear children. And then the work becomes not this thing that we're doing for the master, but rather with 
our father. It's like he's in the house saying, hey, hey, kid, come in here. Look in the garage. I'm, I'm going to show you what I'm up to in here. Look, I, look at this work I'm doing. Look at this person's life that I'm, I'm working in. I'm about to rock their world and reveal myself to them. I'm going to use you to do it. Come on. Come join me in this. I said it last week, but it's worth repeating that throughout history, God has chosen to work not independent of his people, but through his people. Though Jesus is not presently walking the earth, God is just as at work as he has ever been. And he doesn't need us. He can drop any kind of spiritual manna from heaven to meet any kind of spiritual or physical need that he wants to at any moment. He could speak through any uh, medium that he chooses to at anybody, to anybody, at any time. But he chooses, though he doesn't need us, he chooses to involve us in his work as dear children. And as dear children, we ought to be saying, Father, Open my eyes to see where you are working around me and then give me wisdom and power to faithfully join in that work. It's like, Lord, where are you setting up your kingdom around me? Which individual's life are you just working in? Because I want to be there. What geographical location? Like sometimes God's just like, dude, I'm just going to be here for a little while and do some crazy stuff in this location, this restaurant. This city, this nation, this church, this home thing. God, where, where are you setting up camp? I want to go there and like be a part of what you are doing. The Bible tells us that Jesus came as a humble servant. And as a humble servant, he brought the kingdom of God to earth with his life. And then he died and redeemed humanity, rose from the dead, he ascended to heaven, and he's coming back again someday. And when he comes back, he's not going to return as a humble servant, but as a conquering king. And that is when Jesus won't just bring the kingdom of God to earth with his life, but he's literally going to bring heaven to earth. He's literally going to bring heaven to earth. And the earth will become his kingdom as he rules and reigns over it as the conquering king. But until that day comes, he has left us here as agents of the kingdom, as sons and daughters. And because he is living in us, that means the kingdom is among us and working through us, which means that we get to be a part of bringing the kingdom of God to earth. So when Jesus said, pray, Father in heaven, let your kingdom come, he was like, and the kingdom is among you and in you and going to work through you. So he's not here yet, but he is coming again. And until he returns as sons and daughters of the king, we ought to live in consonance with the king and the kingdom. So I want us to ask us, I want us to ask two questions. I want us to be asking one, Jesus, how and where are you already at work in the world around me? And be on the lookout, guys. Like just be on the lookout for where it seems like God is moving. Be on the lookout for spiritual conversations that might start taking place with the people that you work with or the people you go to school with or the people in your family. And, and, and like join in those and expect God. Be expectant that God wants to use you for something bigger than yourself and your little life. The second question we have to ask ourselves is, what does it look like for me to live in consonance with the king and the kingdom? Right? Let's ask ourselves, Okay, when I, when I look at the life of Jesus, what do I see? Because if his life is what the kingdom looks like, then I want to be living in consonance with that. 
And here's what I see in the life of Jesus. First, I see a life of generosity. I see at every turn Jesus feeding hungry people and having way too many leftovers. I see him giving up his alone time to invest in people who needed him. I see someone who is constantly laying aside his rights to whatever he deserved to care for the people around him. And ultimately, we see him laying down his life and holding nothing back, doing everything that needed to be done to make way for our redemption. To live in consonance with the life of Jesus means that we live generously in every, not just with our money and our stuff, although that is absolutely a thing, but in all of our life. Also, when I look at the life of Jesus, I see a life marked by love. We see Jesus demonstrating and bringing the love of God into every interaction with every person he came in contact with. To live in continence with the king and the kingdom means that we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, endeavor to love like Jesus loved. I also, when I look at the life of Jesus, I see a rhythm of forgiveness and mercy. And I use the word rhythm Because it was like a pattern. Like, right, it was this consistent living in, not just every once in a while, he had some mercy or forgiveness. He was living in this rhythm of forgiveness and mercy. All the way to the cross where he's on the cross and he's forgiven the real criminal next to him. And then asking the father to have mercy on the actual people that were killing him. And this forgiveness And mercy thing, guys, it is a cornerstone aspect of the kingdom of God. I mean, of all the ways that we could emulate Jesus, if we all just started forgiving one another like we have been forgiven, literally the entire world would change. Literally the whole planet would change if we would stop holding grudges and we would start releasing people from their debts against us like we have been released from our debt against God. Be kind then to one another, Paul writes, tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also forgave you. You want to live in constance with the king and his kingdom? Stop holding grudges. Stop holding on to that bitterness. You have to know that it's only hurting you. It is destroying you. That's it. And it is for sure, without a shadow of a doubt, most definitely preventing you from fully walking in all that God has in your life right now. And lastly, in the life of Jesus, we see landscape-changing power of God. We see the landscape-changing power of God. Everywhere that Jesus went, in every circumstance, we see him bringing in this power from God that literally just changed the climate. It would just change the landscape. He carried with him the power of God. He brought into every situation something that was beyond the natural. And we see this in him healing people physically, right? Bringing physical healing. We see him in doing this and bringing emotional healing. You look at the lepers who are these outcasts and embarrassed and like full of shame. And he brought healing to them. We see this with people like the, the adulterers and the criminals and the prostitutes who are also full of living in shame. He brings emotional healing to them. We see that Jesus brings in his power, supernatural peace in the situations that were otherwise chaotic and terrifying, like parents watching their kid die or physically like outward 
terrifying situations like being in the, a, a storm in the middle of the sea. He brings his supernatural peace into that. And what's absolutely absurd to me is that Jesus says in John 14, and whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do. Ephesians 1 says that the mighty power that rose Jesus from the dead, that's the mighty power, right? The mighty power that rose Jesus from the dead is working in you. That same power, you didn't hear me, the same power that's work, that worked in Jesus to raise him from the dead is working in you. What? That's crazy power, you guys. God did not leave us powerless. God did not leave us powerless. And here's what's beautiful is God wants to use us to carry that wonder-working power into situations where there is currently anxiety and there's fear and there's brokenness and there's destruction and chaos and turmoil to change the landscape. To live in consonance with the king means that we recognize, wow, we have the power of God working through us. God wants to use us to carry that places. So guys, we don't just sit around and be sleepy and lazy. We wake up. We wake up and be about the Lord's business. And then Jesus ends our text today by saying that then there is a reward for those to choose to, who choose to follow him and live awake. He says in verse 47 that he will set that one, the faithful one, over all his possessions. We read it last week. But at the end, Revelation 5.10 says that Christ of Christ, Christ has made us a kingdom and priest to our God, and that in the end we will reign on the earth with him. But for those who choose to sleep and reject him, there are consequences. He says in verse 51 of that unfaithful servant that the master will cut him into pieces. I think it's interesting that Jesus describes this servant as one whose job it was to make food for his fellow servants. And Jesus says here, if this servant is going to choose to reject me and rebel against my plan for their life and not do the work of being faithful and feeding people and being what I've called them to do, then there is no place for them at my table. They reject me and they are rejecting my invitation for them to dine with me. And they are no better off than the vegetables that are cut into pieces and served at the meal. And what a sorrowful, teeth-grinding existence that will be for those who choose to reject Jesus and his plan for their lives as they experience the consequences of their choices. This is pretty heavy, strong, intense language that Jesus uses here to speak of the judgment that will be brought for those who rebel against him. But in light of this whole chapter... It shouldn't really surprise us because this is language that is intended to wake people up. It is language that is intended to wake us up. And so listen, today, that's you. If you're hearing this and like, wow, that's that's a warning for me. Receive Jesus' invitation to wake up and follow him. As we saw last week, and I'll I'll end with this, until Jesus returns, stuff is going to get crazy. And Jesus' encouragement last week was for us to endure until the end, to hold fast, to stand strong, right? But his encouragement is not just for us to hold fast and stand strong, guys. 
His purpose isn't just for us to endure until the end. His purpose is for us to join in with what he is already doing around us and to live awake in consonance with the kingdom. To live on purpose with purpose. Now is not the time to be sleeping. Let me just say it one more time. Wake up! Oh, no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For all the commandments are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Listen, and do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Amen? Lord, how we want to walk as people who are alive. We don't want to be walking around spiritually sleepwalking. We want to live alive. We ask that by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would come and you would wake us up where we're sleeping. We ask that you would show us things that are, have lulled us into a sleep, lulled us into some kind of spiritual sleepwalking. We ask that you'd open our eyes to see what you're doing around us. And Lord, if there's anybody here today who has never been woken up, they're not, they're not sleepwalking, they're just sleeping. Because they haven't been woken up by you yet. Pray you'd show them that they're, they're dead in their sin and trespasses today. And yet you are the life and you want to bring them to life.